Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and leader of the pack, Anthony Yocalano. Dr. Popescu. How's it going? Oh, you know, it's going, it's going. How about you? Good. It's been a very busy time. <laughs> well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, maybe a little too busy. Oh, <laughs> well, I, I, again, greatly appreciate you willing to take the time out to come back on after my snafu. <laughs> the last time we spoke, I appreciate that. My pleasure. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're, if you're busy, we'll, we'll jump right into it and, uh, to tell my cave dweller community a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical psychologist, an addiction and trauma specialist, and an empowerment coach based out of San Francisco, California. And I work with people all over the world, um, really looking at whatever it is that's creating limitation in their lives, um, understanding kind of the more deeper subconscious processes that might be involved in. Uh, basically creating obstacles and blockages that are keeping people from having the life they'd like to have. So um, a lot of it is doing some digging and excavating and challenging and releasing energies that have been stuck, traumas that have led to limiting beliefs that people have about themselves. Um, and I also work at, uh, I'm the clinical director at a rehab program called Avery Lane here in the Bay Area, which works with women who have addictions and co-occurring mental health disorders, and also most of whom have a tremendous amount of trauma. Very good. It keeps you busy. Huh? A lot of good work that you got going on there, though, huh? Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. No, thank you. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, I know the one thing then, so with that, let's go into the, um, the different modalities that you a practice, I guess you would say. Is that correct? Yeah. So I have really found that traditional talk therapy stays a little bit too much focused on the intellect. And um, there's a lot of talking in circles, kind of like a dog chasing its tail, but never really getting down deep enough into um, the energies, the, the emotions, the subconscious beliefs, the unresolved traumas, uh, all the things that you know, we at some point in time felt like we couldn't deal with and suppressed or repressed and that that material tends to get locked in our bodies um, so that we really need to, if we're really trying to help people to heal, we kind of have to look at things a little bit more holistically. We have to, of course, incorporate thoughts and beliefs uh, and work with the mind, but we also want to work with the body and we also want to work with the spirit. And so I, the techniques that I'm using, a lot of them come under this umbrella called energy psychology. Energy psychology is much more oriented towards working on all those levels, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And so that I have found is so much more effective. It goes so much deeper and it really helps people to 
permanently change those things that aren't working for them. Awesome. Very good. Yeah, appreciate that. And again, you know, it's, I, I agree with the whole energy work, you know, working with your, you know, with the mind, the body and the soul. I mean, you definitely have to have all of those in line in order to kind of have, I guess, have a, a, a good life going on for you, you know, to, to, to go to, to handle the traumas and everything that might come about. So now let's, um, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. Well, I was going to say, you know, you really just have to look at any issue that way. I mean, when someone's coming in for depression, for example, or anxiety, you know, it's not just what's going on in their head, it's impacting their body, right? Like, you know, people who are depressed can't, you know, if it's bad enough, they can't get out of bed, they can't can't focus, they can't do their work. Um, Someone who's highly anxious also is not going to be able to focus their heart is like pounding, you know, they're, they're always in that sort of activated fight flight kind of response. And so that takes its toll, um, and has effects on the body. It has effects on your spirit. Um, when you're depressed, you know, some people talk about like it being a a dark night of the soul. Some people have like an existential crisis, like what is the point of it all? Um, so we really have to be looking at all of that if we're going to effectively assist our clients in, really recovering from whatever the issue is yeah and i I, and i know like i've done a lot of listening i guess on uh mindfulness um haven't i haven't lately but uh you know and it's it's amazing what mindfulness really does for you i mean you know again it does the whole mind body and soul by practicing mindfulness you know so i definitely would like to uh get back into practicing that <laughs> never I, you know i was just getting into it just trying to get started at it but then you know life obviously throws your curveballs so you you kind of have to focus on other things so but, well the uh, thing with mindfulness that i think is so useful is it just, it trains you it, it teaches you how to be the observer of your own experience when we're not when we're on autopilot we're not always attuned and attentive to everything that's happening you're we're, we're so in our heads, we're not even aware of what's going on with our bodies. We don't even recognize, you know, Hey, you know, take a break, you know, or, or I need sleep or I need food. You know, the things your body's basic needs, oftentimes we overlook that stuff. So mindfulness teaches you how to pay attention to your own experience. And then once you have an awareness of what's going on, then you can change things. If you're on autopilot, you don't know how to change anything because you're not even aware it's going on. So I think mindfulness is, is a major precursor to doing this type of work. Sure. Yes. And, and just like most of it, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to want to do it in order for it to work, you know, or you're just kind of working against yourself basically is what you're going through. And mm-hmm. it takes a lot of practice. And, and, you know, again, which like with what you do, it takes some help from someone else to, to get you, you know, going down that right path. So. I think so. I mean, there's a lot we can do on our own. We certainly can use a lot of these tools. You know, I I definitely like to empower my clients with tools that they can use on their own and in between sessions. Um, But we all have our blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. And so having someone who's a little bit more experienced in using a particular technique can assist us in looking in the places we might not of our own accord be able to find. So that leads us into, I guess, talking about the brain. What what are the three parts of our brain and how do they work? Yeah, so scientists, as they look at, you know, um, how animals have evolved over time and 
how humans have developed, um, what they have discovered is that um, the brain has evolved over time from reptilian to mammalian to human. So there are certain features that we all share um, with the reptilian mind. And this is like the really basic survival stuff, right? Your, your breathing, your autonomic responses, uh, the um, aggression, territoriality, things like that. Um, you know, reprodu reproducing, feeding, all your basic sort of survival things are really in the realm of the reptilian mind or some people call it your lizard brain. Um, as reptiles evolved into mammals, uh, they also developed the capacity for emotion and for memory and uh, things like that. And so uh, when we talk about even like locations in the brain, like the brain stem tends to be the more primitive part and then the midbrain is considered, you know, the uh, where we have the emotional center of the brain, the amygdala, which is really key in the work that I do with people because the amygdala is the part of your brain that determines whether or not there is a threat to you. And um, when, for example, you know, in when we were earlier in our evolution, you know, if we were out and we came across a bear in the woods you know, our, our, our amygdala would signal danger, danger to the body. It would activate parts of the lizard brain. You get this whole cascade of biochemical responses that would basically prime us to fight or flight, right? And the freeze response is actually considered the most primitive response. That's when you play dead. That's when everything slows down, your heart rate, your breathing, everything, hoping that that bear will think you're dead and not bother you, right? So that's very much uh, considered a reptilian response. So uh, as we evolve from mammals you know, to humans, we develop the front part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that allows me to use language and to be talking to you and you have an understanding of what I'm saying, abstract reasoning, math, um, all those things, you know, is more recently developed. Um, and what we're finding or what science is telling us is that we're still really run most of the time, maybe even 80% of the time by those more primitive forces, right? So when we talk about things like the subconscious mind, the things that you're not consciously aware of with your prefrontal cortex, that tends to be um, the memories, the traumas, things like that tend to be more the realm of the midbrain or the, uh, you know, mammalian brain. And a lot of it is that survival stuff. So then that's our like really primitive lizard brain. Um, so we're not as much functioning from this part of our brain, which is why I think traditional talk therapy with its emphasis on talking, thinking, analyzing, reasoning, um, has its place, but is not often helpful when someone's fight, flight, freeze response is activated, right? If, you're, if your body is responding as if there is a life or death threat going on, your logic and reason can't always kick in because 70% of the blood flow goes out of that part of your brain in those crisis moments and goes to your extremities. It goes to your, your hands, your feet. It's mobilizing you to be able to run or to fight. And if those fail, then to shut everything down and play dead. Awesome. <laughs> I always love getting into that type of conversation because again, it does relate to, 
you know, how our brains developed with our Neanderthal ancestors and cousins and early human ancestors and, you know, how we still have that effect on our brains, on our minds, you know, so I, I like talking about that, I like getting into that. Well, particularly for people who've had trauma, right? I mean, you know, there was this whole study that came out, gosh, I don't know, in the 90s or something um, called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And they developed this 10-point scale that asked people, it was all part of the Kaiser Medical System here in California. They interviewed, uh, like, or interviewed, or had these people fill out a questionnaire. It was like 17,000 people. And they looked at correlations between early adverse childhood experiences, things like if you were abused or neglected, uh, if you grew up in the home with somebody who had a mental health issue or an addiction or who was in jail or prison, all these different potentially very stressful or traumatic experience, adverse experiences. And they looked at their health outcomes over time, right? And what they discovered was that there was this huge correlation between having had those early childhood traumatic type experiences and later problems in life with health, physical health, heart disease, lung stuff, um, mental health, depression, addiction, suicidality. There was a massive correlation and the more negative adverse experiences those kids had had, the more likely they were to have those problems later in life. So we know that trauma in particular impacts the developing brain and what happens is when you're constantly being faced with that dangerous life or death situation or what feels like a life or death situation, your brain is now primed to overreact. So this is why you see people who have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, they have things like an exaggerated startle response. They overreact, right? Um, they have hypervigilance where they're always like, you know, looking for the danger. Their brain is like constantly triggered uh, in this space of danger, danger, and they'll misinterpret, their brain will, will misinterpret a tone of voice, a certain look, you know, that isn't actually life-threatening or even like being late for an appointment or something. And their brain will interpret that as a life or death situation. And you get that whole, you know, amped up fight flight type response or a freeze response, which is the shutdown, you know, kind of the, the dissociation, the checking out. Um, and they, and they it can be so impairing that they really can't even function. So um, it has a huge impact on how we function in the world and how able we are to actually accurately re recognize when we are in fact in true danger and when we're not. And then that's when your studies come into place. That's, that kind of helps with, um, you know, ch changing that. Uh, you know, changing that with, with the psychological techniques that you use. I mean, that, that it has been proven to help. Yes. Has been proven yeah. to change that response. Yeah. There are so many studies, but I mean, even just in the field of energy psychology, I think at this point there's over 250 published research studies that uh, generally have very strong effects um, that show that when we intervene into that process, we can actually interrupt and extinguish that conditioned response to keep overreacting to this extreme state um, to different triggers, right? Yeah. So it's very exciting. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. It's, uh, and you know, and it's, we could even go with, you know, t to today's environment, you know, that, uh, 
you know, with COVID and, you know, the isolation and, you know, everyone is so scared to touch anybody or anything, you know, it's, you know, that, that, that plays a lot into psychology and you know, mindfulness as well, you know. Sure. I mean, we need these tools now more than ever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. the, rates, the rates of depression and anxiety and suicides and uh, overdoses and drug addiction, everything is, you know, and people are angry and there's, you know, fighting and violence and protests. And yeah, I mean, we're living in an extremely uh, intense, stressful kind of environment. And what that tends to do is it tends to activate in people like, you know, not so, usually it's not very conscious. It tends to activate all the unresolved trauma, right? Something that's happening pre happening present time will trigger the things in you that are not healed from the past. Yeah. And you'll start to re-experience that type of thing. So we have a lot of highly traumatized people um, activated in the world right now. Well, I mean, you, you know, again, what you do is so necessary all the time, but obviously, you know, in times like these, it's, you know, I mean, I can understand that you are very busy with, uh, you know, trying to help people out. Yeah. Now the, um, so did we, I have something down here for the polyvagal theory. So is that kind of what? Uh, That's kind of what I've been describing to okay. you. Yeah. Polyvagal theory is a more recent um, development in science developed by a guy named Stephen Porges. And he was researching, you know, the anatomy and really trying to understand like how uh, these mechanisms, without getting too sciencey, right? Like how it all works. Mm -hmm. And basically there's this nerve called the vagus nerve. That's like one of the main nerves in our okay. body. It runs yeah. from our brain, you know, down our spine. It goes through all our organs. And it apparently is very key to this whole activation of the fight flight freeze response. Um, when that amygdala perceives danger, whether it's real or not, it signals the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve is involved in mobilizing, right. you know, your heart, okay. your heart rate up, changing your breathing. And it also can get you out of that activation. So it's kind of like the key to parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system arousal, right? Sympathetic is when everything is amped up. And you've got like the adrenaline and the cortisol and all that. And the vagus nerve is very involved in making that happen. And it's also involved in getting us to a, a state of parasympathetic relaxation where we don't have the amp up, where we're calm and relaxed and we feel safe. Polyvagal is all about, is all about feeling safe. And so um, it's really, it's been really interesting to, as we learn more about it, um, that we can activate the vagus nerve to actually help us to calm down. So this is what some of the energy psychology techniques are doing. Um, there, it, this is also what uh, breathing, like when we do certain breathing techniques, um, it is activating that vagus nerve to get us out of the activation and into the calm state. So then that, that kind of uh, answered the, the next question I was going to ask you is, can we actually change the primitive brain? And I mean, you kind of. Yes. Yeah. yes, we can rewire it. Um, we can rewire it for sure. And um, we basically, because if you think about it, like I said before, you know, these are conditioned responses. Um, you, if you grew up with, in a home where there was a lot of like anger, or, or let's say somebody like a dad had like a rage issue and he was always yelling and screaming and throwing things, then your brain got primed, it got conditioned to respond in this 
oh no, danger kind of way yeah. anytime someone raises their voice, right? It could be anything that st that simulates that or stimulates that response. It could be uh, a certain, the way a certain man looks or his, a certain posturing might activate that fear response that's really been conditioned. So we have to extinguish those responses and many of these techniques allow us to do just that. So how I have it worded is we can change and heal the dysfunctions and re-regulate our nervous systems with tools like brain spotting, EMDR, energy psychology, energy. So can you touch on any of those? Like what's brain spotting? Brain spotting is actually an offshoot of EMDR. EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and, and reprocessing. Uh, and what it is, it's a longtime trauma technique uh, developed by a woman named Francine Shapiro, maybe 40, 40 or more years ago. And um, it involves bilateral stimulation of the brain between the left part of the brain, and the right side of the brain. So kind of like the more emotional part and the more logical part. And it often involved, originally it would involve taking a finger and moving it across someone's visual field and having them follow with their eyes. Because the eye, what we're now understanding is the optic nerve connects back to the amygdala, right? Makes mm -hmm. sense. Our eyes are scanning mm -hmm. the environment, looking for threats. And then the amygdala, if it identifies a threat, you know, then activates that vagus nerve and we get that whole fight flight response. And so they discovered in doing these eye movements and then later it evolved to uh, maybe like tapping on alternate sides of the body or tapping like on the knees. They also will use a clicker or um, music that kind of it sounds like it's going in and out the, the two ears. Um, they just found that in doing that, while the person was thinking about the trauma or the stressor or whatever, that it was basically, you know, calming the nervous system down, even though you're talking about the stressor, right? So you have this um, extinguishing type response. Now, energy psychology, something like EFT tapping, um, where we're tapping on acupuncture points is doing a similar thing. They now understand, you know, they can look at people's brains under an MRI now and they can see that, that stimulating these certain points on the body again, sends a signal up to that amygdala and says, hey, you're not in danger, calm down, get out of fight, flight, freeze, vagus nerve gets involved, the whole system calms down. And the interesting thing with the what they're finding with energy psychology is there's this mem memory reconsolidation piece where if you're bringing up the memories of a painful traumatic event and you're talking about it while you know tapping on those points you're essentially saying yes this at the time was seemed like a terrible you know frightening thing but we're safe now right essentially we're safe we're okay um then what happens is you end up clearing the emotion, all the unresolved emotion, all the trauma, all the fear, you release all of that energy, all those emotions that were usually locked in the body, you're able to let those go. And then the memory of that event will get recoded. This is the hippocampus is involved in this. It will get recoded into long-term memory without all of that emotion. So a great example of this is I had a woman come to me in practice, in my private practice, um, with a terrible car accident she'd recently been in. She couldn't even begin to tell me the story without crying and shaking and, you know, having that whole trauma response. 
So we did uh, an EFT tapping technique called uh, the movie technique, where I had her tell me the story as if we were watching the movie of it. And we would start from the beginning when there was no problem to the very first scene. You were driving in your car and it was a head-on collision. You see the other car veering into your lane, pause. We pause the movie. What are you remembering right now? So she'll, she might've said, uh, I have a lump in my throat. I'm thinking, oh my God, we're gonna die. What's happening? Um, my heart's pounding, I'm feeling scared, right? And we tap on all those aspects, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, and then as the, and then we, until her stress level comes down with, with these techniques, we use a SUDS rating scale, subjective units of distress or disturbance. And so when she's first telling me the story, maybe it's eight, nine, 10, she's super activated. We want her to get below a five. Once we get her below a five with that tapping, because we're activating that relaxation response, right? And we're telling her brain, yes, this happened, but it's not happening now. And you can let this go. It's okay. We're safe now. So then once we've gotten that stress level down, I rewind the movie, have her go through that scene again, make sure there's no activation. And then we move on to the next scene. Okay, now you're slamming on the brakes. You hear the screeching of the tires. You smell burnt rubber. We tap on all that, right? And we keep doing this for the entire, every part of the experience, all the way to afterwards, a car slipped over, there's is bloody. I mean, there were, you know, the kids were in the back. It was a bit, really big trauma. The ambulance comes, you know, all those things. We do the whole thing. It takes three sessions to go through all of that. By the end of it, she can tell me the entire story, totally calm, totally neutral, no activation. The memory of that accident has been recoded into her brain without all of that upset, without the fear and the trauma and even the physical you know, the shaking and all that response she had, we extinguished it. I had her go back to the intersection where it happened, first on foot, you know, and in, to see if anything came up, you know, and if it had, I would have had her keep tapping, right? Because now she has the visual stimuli of actually being back in that location, right? Doesn't have any response. And next I had her get in the car with someone else driving through that intersection. No response. Then I had her drive her own car, through the same intersection, down that same road, she was totally calm, no activation. That's how you know this stuff works. Yeah, that's amazing, amazing. And I, I don't, I don't know why it's not. I'm sure it's used, but to me, it doesn't seem like it's used as often as it should be used. You know, I mean, well, maybe people don't not, know. That's right. the thing, right? It's not mainstream, are- yeah. Even in our profession, you know, I mean, that's why I started my own podcast. Um, I have a podcast called Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health, where I'm really trying to educate people, not just potential, you know, clients, people who have issues, but also practitioners and therapists to know there are so many of these healing modalities. There's a lot you can do with hands-on energy work um, where you're not even using words and you're just like present with the energies in the body and letting them shift and move, um, movement therapies, all different kinds of ways of working, um, with the body, mind, spirit, um, that are so powerful, but people, and a lot of them are rooted in traditional healing modalities, right? I mean, you know, tapping comes from acupuncture, which comes from 5,000 years of traditional Chinese medicine. If we were working with the chakras, um, you know, this energy, yes. these other energy centers of the body, 
then we're talking Indian medicine, Ayurvedic medicine. That's been around for about 5,000 years. You know, nothing in here. And that's why I think it's so funny that Western medicine has this arrogant attitude. Well, that stuff's all woo woo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except that it's been around way been longer around. than Western medicine has, yes. right? Yes. And now <laughs> we actually have the technology to measure someone's biofield, their aura. We can measure that. We can look at people's brains and we can see how, you know, before and after tapping, different parts of the brain light up or, or, or in the, either the brain is really like active or it's really calm. We can see that now. We can measure brain waves. We can measure heart rate variability. We can measure adrenaline and cortisol levels. All of these things have been done in these research studies that show scientifically, this stuff is not woo woo. Harvard Medical School did a 10 year study on acupuncture and acupoints and could easily measure them, you know, with the technology they have. They totally validated that these points the, and these energy pathways do exist in our bodies and do seem to do things, send signals up to our brain through the fascia through that, um, to, you know, the fascia is what surrounds all our muscles and organs and all of that. And it's, it conducts electricity. And they believe now it's the fascia that's actually conducting that signal from the acupuncture point up to those parts of the brain. Yeah, that's actually, that's funny. Cause I was going to ask you, you know, I've never tried acupuncture and I would love to. And I was just going to ask you how, like, why, why does that work? You know, where, where you, you got the metal sticking out of certain pressure points. Like what's the purpose of the long stick sticking out? Well, because the, the metal is, helps conduct the electricity to mm. get the electrical signal up. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about like how they develop the needle aspect of it, right. but I know that really what it's about is just stimulation. Okay. You can stimulate that point with the needle. You can stimulate it by tapping, tapping it. Yeah. You can stimulate it by rubbing it. You're just putting pressure on it, whatever it is, but you're activating, you're, you know, stimulating that point, And that point is sending the signal up to the brain. So, you know, the traditional perspective is more based on energy. You know, the, the, the Chinese believe, you know, that we have these different meridians or pathways along which energy runs. And that when that energy flow gets uh, stuck, blocked, slowed down or overamped, when it gets out of balance, that's what creates the disease or distress. Yeah. And if we were to just balance the flow of the energy in the body, then it can heal itself. So, you know, the needles are there to like balance, to get the energy flowing more freely along the different pathways. Um, and that is, I do believe still part of it, but yeah. now we know that there's even more um, physiological stuff going on as well. In this day and time that we have now obviously it's you know it's letting up a little bit but when covid when everyone was isolated what did your work focus more on you know like you were saying maybe more on the storytelling just like doing a zoom call i guess right i mean because you couldn't really be face to face with anybody right well the nice thing about these techniques is that you can do you can do a lot of them over the zoom you know yeah. we can I can show you what points to tap on. Right. Um, we can do the brain spotting where we use a, a pointer and we, you have the sound, the music going in and out and you're, you know, bringing up an issue and then you find the spot where it seems to activate, you know, that optic nerve gets up to the amygdala and like, you really feel that something's going on. You can process <laughs> that online. That's not, that's totally doable. Um, so that was a good thing is that a lot of the techniques could be applied to remote sessions like this. And also, uh, but what, in terms of like what came up for people, 
Um, certainly there were, you know, folks I've worked with who, I mean, I have a range of clientele. Uh, I work with nurses and doctors and people who are doing frontline work in hospitals. <laughs> so there was a lot of stress, anxiety, overwhelm, trauma with that. Um, I worked with some people who were impacted financially, you know, with their businesses or their jobs. Um, you had people, because I work with addiction, we had a lot of people um, getting really depressed, uh, starting to, you know, use more heavily or relapse even. So substance use was a big thing. Um, we definitely had some suicide and OD stuff going on. And um, more even like just an existential kind of life crisis. Like, what's the point of it all? Like, you know, people, I think a lot of people took a, have been taking a real hard look at their lives and saying, okay, is this working for me? Is the relationship I'm in still working for me? Um, where's my career going? What am I doing with my life? I, I definitely have a lot of that kind of searching and, and, and depression and in spiritual, you know, quest and, you know, like trying to, uh, I work with a lot of people who have had spiritually transformative experiences. And there's been a lot of that people have had. Um, I think, you know, there's a, there, we're in a revolutionary time on this planet and a lot of things are shifting, you know, to create more consciousness. And that, when that happens, it tends to bring up all the shadow stuff, right? Oh, so uh, a lot of that as well, it's really, it's, it's been, it, ha it has been potentially a big time for growth. But unless you're willing to look at what you can learn from this, you might go to the negative part of like, this is awful and it's horrific and all of that, rather than what's right about all of this that's happening and how can I grow from it? So then that kind of plays into a lot of the uh, coaching, transformational and empowering workshops that you do. Yeah. You have a lot of those, you yes. do a lot of those. Yeah. And, and I've been lucky again with technology as it is to mm -hmm. be able to even do that uh, over the, over zoom, having workshops with folks from all over the world um, and being able to really give them, I think the point of all the workshops that I do really is to empower people with these tools to know that they can change the way they think they can change the way they feel they can heal these traumas and other things that have happened in their lives. Um, they can connect with their true spirit, their authentic selves. Um, and really, you know, the tagline for my business is creating a life of infinite possibilities. Um, I know now all of that is possible, uh, both from my own experience and from the thousands of people that I've worked with. So now, how, so how long have you been practicing this or doing these, doing these, uh, I mean, I was lucky in that I knew I wanted to go into this field from a young age. So, I mean, I first started doing internships and things while I was in college studying psychology, you know, 18, 19 years old. Um, so over 25 years at this point. Cool. And uh, I got licensed in 2008. So however many years that is, 13 years, uh, whatever, licensed as a psychologist. Um, but the energy psychology stuff I discovered while I was still in grad school, because at that time, um, I was ex myself extremely ill. Uh, I was going through this thing with Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was on a quest for my own healing. Western medicine had little to nothing to offer me. So I, that's how I discovered these alternative healing methods. You know, it started with chiropractic and acupuncture, and then it morphed from there into energy work and other things. Um, and I discovered, uh, back in 2000, I found a flyer 
in our student lounge for an energy psychology conference in San Diego and just knew I had to be there. And that's where I really was first exposed to all of these modalities, um, so many of them. And then about 10 years ago, I discovered access consciousness, um, which is really kind of its own thing that does have some hands-on energy work, but also verbal facilitation. And I do a lot of that work in my practice as well. I'm not um, wedded to any one particular modality. I have a lot of tools in the toolbox because everybody responds differently yes. to different things. Some people would love tapping, some people hate it. I just say, here, here are all these tools, let's play with them and see what works for you. Yeah, I mean, it's good to have all those tools, as you say, in your bag. I mean, like, like you said, you know, everyone, everyone responds differently without a doubt. Now, what, what is your take on float tanks? I, I like to do the, the sensory deprivation tanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's a you know, it's funny. Some people love those and some people hate those because they have a hard time being alone with their own thoughts, uh, right? Yes. Particularly a lot of my <laughs> addiction clients, a lot of what they're doing is they're trying to numb all of that, right? They have a hard time being present with uh, emotions, thoughts, whatever it may be. Uh, I work a lot with empaths who are highly sensitive people and they're always picking up on everyone else's <laughs> stuff, right? So um I think, I think for the people that, that, that are open to it, it can be, it can be great. Again, it can help you to learn mindfulness. It can yeah. help you to become more observant of those thoughts and feelings and have a sense of neutrality. That's really what the whole point of like mindfulness meditation is, is to have that ability to detach from the thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, and just be that more neutral observer. It's from that position that you can actually change things. If you're totally identified with the thought or the emotion, it's running the show and you don't really have much control over it. Very good. Awesome. Now, so we touched a little bit about your podcast. I didn't know if you wanted to go any more into that. Uh, Kaleidoscope of Possibilities, uh, Alternative Perspectives on Mental Health. How long have you been doing that? I've been doing that now for about a year and a half, almost a year and a half. And I think we have maybe close to 40 episodes. It's been great. I mean, I've gotten a chance to interview most of my mentors, you know, the people who created these various modalities yeah. or people that are experts in it. I've learned a lot. We, we did a, one with on scalar lights. Um, I learned about a, a color puncture, which is like color acupuncture with color, um, oh. different color frequencies. I mean, there's so many, right? Like really cool modalities out there. I've also interviewed people who are more on the client side who um, maybe were diagnosed with something like bipolar disorder or whatever, but it turned out to actually not be a pathology. It was just that they were highly sensitive and they were, they just didn't know how to manage their awareness. I have a lot around uh, looking at different perspectives on psychosis, things, what things, like uh, schizophrenia, uh, people hearing things, seeing things, like what if that's not their imagination? What if they actually are attuned to uh, the spirit world or things yeah. that you know not everybody might be aware of? And what if that's not a problem? There was a really cool episode with Brittany Quagan, who is a therapist, but also a psychic and a medium, who's involved in this research project at Yale, Yale University on hearing voices and seeing things and what if it's not a problem? What if it's like a normal human phenomenon and not a pathology, right? So 
uh, that to me has been the cross-cultural perspective, you know, speaking with people about how in other cultures, you know, like what a shaman sees in a mental institution, you know, that's fascinating stuff. You know, the, this guy went into, uh, you know, psychiatric hospitals and said, what are you doing to these people? He was a African um, shaman. And he said, in, in our culture, he said, these people are hearing things. They're hearing the voices of the spirits calling them to do healing work. This is a gift. We would celebrate them and we would and, and we would put them with the shaman or the medicine man or whoever to get training so they can use their gift. And there was a documentary called Crazy Wise that also addresses that. And I interviewed the director, Phil Borges. I mean, some really, really cool conversations um, because other in other cultures, they would not see what we in the West call pathology, right? So even things like uh, ADHD, OCD, autism, Asperger's, what if those are just differences? What if these kids that have these different conditions are just like X-Men and they have super superpowers that just aren't, don't look like anyone else's? What if it's not bad or wrong? Yeah, it seems like it's, you know, the, I don't know if I'm going to say the American way, but it's, you know, we're so quick to just say, well, they have a mental issue, give them this medicine, you know, yeah. yeah it's 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 a shame that they don't look far enough into it but you know medicine has this place especially if someone is so impaired with their experiences that they can't function they have their place but they, are they the solution absolutely not and even a psychiatrist most psychiatrists are going to tell you that as well like the people still need the therapy they need to do the work on themselves um a pill alone is not a magic bullet i always say to people if they want to come off their meds you know, that they do it under the guidance of their psychiatrist because it can be dangerous to just abruptly stop taking certain medications. Um, you, you, that you have a plan, that you do it slowly and weaning yourself off and that you make sure that your life is pretty stable. Like it's not a good idea to go off your meds when you have a lot of stress going on and you have a lot of life crises going on. Um, you know, that's not gonna, that's probably going to put you in a worse position. You know, you do it at a time when things seem relatively calm, when you've got coping strategies and tools to deal with stress, you know, you're, you're going to have to substitute whatever that pill was doing. You have to have other ways of managing whatever the pill is doing. Right. I don't, I don't know how much time you, there was just two more things that I had. One just popped up. If you have the time, if not, it's, it's the biggest thing I did want to ask you is, you know, well, okay. So let's, let's go with, are there any, and you don't have to answer it, are there any practices out there that that offend you in a sense that you're dead set against? I mean, the only thing I can think of is conversion therapy. <laughs> I mean, think that's pretty offensive. Uh, conversion therapy has been outlawed in a number of states, but it still goes on in some places where they're trying to uh, take people who uh, identify as being gay or bisexual or whatever their sexual orientation is and they're trying to get it out of them and convert them to being straight heterosexual. I think that's pretty horrific. And people have been hugely traumatized by that process and it hasn't worked to change their sexual orientation. Um, so I think that's why, you know, there are a number of like psychology boards in different states that have advocated for outlawing that practice. That's really the only thing I can think of that's pretty egregious. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and I would I tend to agree with that. That's it's yeah, yeah, without a doubt, I agree with that. So then, the only other thing I was going to ask is, you know, basically, is there anything that we did not discuss that you would like to? 
obviously at the end of this or, or not at the end of this, but on, you know, whenever I go to publish it, we'll have all your links and everything that everyone can get a hold of you for, you know, all the workshops and everything that you have. But uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, I think just to let people know, I mean, empowerment is so important in, in my work, you know, to just let people know that you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances or of a diagnosed mental health condition or of trauma or whatever. Um, those things may have happened or you may have a predisposition to this, that, or the other. But when you look at things through the energetic lens, you realize that energy is malleable. It's never fixed. It's always moving and changing. Like, you know, think your high school chemistry or physics classes, electrons are always moving around doing stuff. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is permanent. Things always can change. And so when you see things and you see thoughts and emotions and physical things as energy, you realize it's malleable. And when it's malleable, it means we can change it. So that's the good news in all of this is that we can change anything that is creating a problem for someone, um, disrupting their life in some way. There are tools to actually create that change so that it doesn't become a limitation to you. Dr. Popescu, I, I appreciate it. And, and I thank you so much for being willing to come back on after, you know, I forgot to record the last one. <laughs> No worries. I, I still, I do it. yeah, I still think we hit uh, hit hit a lot of things on the on the head and uh, some awesome information. And uh, you know, like I said, um, you know, in the show notes, I'll have you know every all the all the ways to contact you. Oh, you know what? There was you had um, uh, you had did a couple of books, right? You authored or co-authored? I, don't know, I, I have. That. Yeah. So with books, um, I have written a book chapter and a book called The Energy of Magic. And um, I helped my good friend and colleague TJ Woodward with developing his conscious being and conscious recovery books. And then we did workbooks for those two. And we actually I just proofread our third workbook for his last uh, book in the conscious series, Conscious Creation. Um, we just co-authored uh, a workbook on that, which will come out coming out soon. And I have my own book that I'm working on called What If You're Not As Effed Up As You Think You Are. Um, so be looking for that, hopefully in this next year or so. <laughs> awesome. And, and, and whenever you're ready to, uh, you know, to start promoting that, uh, by all means, you know, give me an email and uh, I'll get you back on to promote that book without a doubt. Yeah. Thank you. I like, I like doing that for, you know, for my guests and, uh, you know, I've had, I've interviewed quite a few authors and, you know, any, that's the same thing I tell them, you know, anytime you're ready to bring another book out, just let me know. I'll get you on just to talk specifically about that. So cool. Yeah. Or, thank you. Or anything else that pops up or any, any more exciting news or anything that new, new discoveries you want to, you want to get out to the communities, you know, definitely let me know. Okay. Will do. Well, Dr. Popescu, again, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening over there. Uh, well, you're, basically early afternoon over there and yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's not even four o'clock here so we still got a long time to go but you know again open door open book anytime you want to you want to come on just uh you know let me know and uh, we'll get you on great thank you and let me know when the podcast airs we'll, we'll i'll have my team also promoted on my channels as well yes awesome okay again thank you. adriana thank you so much we'll, we'll see bye you bye. now bye bye all right, cave dwellers. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Popescu. It was a long time in the making, all due to my inexperience on this podcasting journey.
I first sat down with Dr. Popescu in June of this year, that is, for an interview. But due to a huge mistake all my own, I forgot to hit record. Dr. Popescu gave an awesome interview that day, but I foobarred and caused my community, as well as Dr. Popescu's, to miss out at the time on some fascinating and intriguing conversation. Thankfully, Dr. Popescu, being understanding as she is, agreed to give me one more chance to take up her valuable and precious time to interview. And I think it turned out even better than the first. I encourage all of you to link up to Dr. Popescu and follow her on all the social media platforms she is involved in. And of course, you'll be able to find all those links in the show notes. So until next episode, cave dwellers. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast as much as we hope you have, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget to leave your cave drawings and or comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.